psilocybin cannabinoids, and supply chains, oh my. We're about to hear from Marshall Tyler, a scientist and dog lover who moved from one of the top performing cannabis edible companies in the USA to a new venture that's exploring psychedelic science with an emphasis on set and setting. We talked about his wild career path, what he wants people trying substances for the first time to know, the best edibles in California, and the future of the psychedelic and cannabis industries. After getting degrees from both Cornell and Harvard, I'm sure you had your pick of employers. What attracted you to cannabis? Yeah, so I definitely could have chosen a different route, and I definitely could have gone into the pharmaceutical space, but I felt like cannabis was a much more exciting opportunity, and it was something that I had always been very passionate about, very interested in, had a lot of personal experience with. So I was definitely drawn towards that, and it was good timing, too, uh, because by the time I finished my graduate degree, cannabis had just been legalized in California, and so it was sort of a right place to get involved. So what was your first job in the cannabis industry? I did a little bit of consulting, actually, for uh, some of the cannabis testing labs in California, uh, the ones that basically put the stamp of approval on all cannabis products before they get to the consumer. My first real job in the space was with Plus Products uh, making cannabis edibles, or rather, I was doing the testing, the analytical testing on the edibles that we were making. Mm-hmm. Actually, I spoke to Andrew Pham a couple of weeks ago, and he said he interviewed you once. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did <laughs> at Bel Costa when he was working there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said you were doing something with CRISPR. I uh, couldn't remember exactly what. Yeah, some of my undergraduate work was with CRISPR gene editing. So I was hoping at some point to apply some of that to cannabis in order to modify some of the genes that are involved in THC production or THCA production rather. And didn't end up using any of that, <laughs> but it was something that I probably brought up at the interview. Yeah. That's fascinating. How would that uh, work exactly? So there are a variety of different routes you could go on. Once you understand the enzymes that produce those cannabinoids well, enough, then you can go and manipulate the genetic code that's involved in producing those enzymes. And if a certain cannabinoid, for example, were found to be especially beneficial for either some sort of medical disorder or just for producing a better high, then you could edit those genes such that more of that cannabinoid is produced perhaps at the expense of some of the other cannabinoids. But for example, you can make a really CBGA dominant strain or even make modifications in the enzyme that produce that cannabinoid so they produce even more of it and do it faster or earlier stages in the growth cycle. And so that would be some of the longer term applications of it if, it if it actually turned out to be successful in cannabis. I've talked to some people who are really interested in the genome editing side of cannabis, but I, I don't really know anyone who's who's done it yet. I'm not sure of any companies that are quite there at this point. So you worked at Plus, and Plus products definitely stand out as far as consistency goes, which sounds like it has a lot to do with your work. In low-level terms, what makes Plus gummies different from the competition? (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate that. And I will say that a lot of the quality of the gummy comes from the amazing food scientists at the company as well. So Crunchy Crunchington, he was really the lead mind behind the product and developed something pretty much unmatched in the space um, in terms of the consistency. But at Plus, they really needed the capacity to analyze the individual gummies too and make sure we knew that the THC would homogenize 
recognized well. That is that it would get to all the gummies just based on the makeup of the food. It was really conducive to dispersing the THC and CBD throughout the gummy so that it was really consistent in that way. But we had to make sure we were getting the right amount of uh, THC, CBD, and any other cannabinoid within each gummy. Mm -hmm. So that involved rigorous testing throughout the process and refining the process through testing. So every point of the process has quality checks that allow for changes to be made if it's deemed that some of the THC is being lost for some reason, or maybe we have more THC than than we thought we should have in those gummies. Um, There were checks put in place so that on the line, we could do that sort of quality testing. So I don't think there are actually many producers, or at least there weren't many manufacturers rather at the time that were using and relying on their own internal testing to determine what the THC and CBD of their products were like. So we were one of the few, um, if not the only at the time that was really relying heavily on our own internal lab rather than just leaning on these external labs because the feedback process there is a lot slower, right? You can't stop the middle of a production run and send it out to a lab and then wait for the results back and then modify your process. We really needed that in-process testing. And so that's why we had all these internal labs at Plus and, and they still operate at Plus today. Nice. So why is cannabis testing so important? It's important to ensure the quality of the product. I mean, I think everyone's had the experience where they've had an edible that's been far, far too potent and really been turned off from the product uh, (laughs) because of that. And I think edibles are new for a lot of people still even. And to have an experience with a gummy that says it contains five milligrams, but really contains, you know, 100 milligrams of THC is going to totally change the experience and potentially turn the consumer off of edibles for a lifetime when they could have potentially benefited tremendously from them. So I think, you know, dosing is really important for for that reason to prevent overdose. Um, And then there's also the consistency that's so important because you want to know that every time you have that particular gummy or that particular edible product, you're going to have a similar experience or at least an experience that's predictable within certain limits that you determine to be reasonable rather than a totally unpredictable experience each time where you might be getting two milligrams, one gummy, and then 50 the next, and, and you have no idea what to expect. I think most people would prefer some level of consistency there. Mm -hmm. Those are a couple of key reasons why it's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's good to always know what you're signing up for, for sure. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Have you ever had an experience where you took an edible and it was very much not what you expected? (laughs) I've had quite a few of those experiences, especially, you know, back when we were all sort of figuring out how to make cannabis edibles before there was any sort of legal market or anything like that, <laughs> um, you know, just in school and everything. And no one had a good idea of exactly how much cannabis to put in or what's the best way to extract the THC or do you even need to extract it? Can you just bake the plant straight into the edible? Oh boy, I remember those. <laughs> and, and yeah, and I think a lot of people probably had those experiences. And sometimes someone would make a brownie and it would just, you wouldn't feel anything. And so you'd think, you know, maybe I'm not very responsive to cannabis, but then some Someone else would make it in the same way or a very similar way and you would get incredibly high. And so, yeah, I've definitely had some very high dose experiences that weren't very enjoyable. (laughs) So, Marshall, what makes cannabis testing consistently so difficult? It comes down to the complexity of the chemistry of the product. 
what you have to do in order to analyze the THC, CBD, and other cannabinoids that you want to look at within a product is you have to separate everything else out from those molecules. So you're isolating those molecules from everything else before running it through this uh, piece of analytical equipment. Generally, it's in HPLC, and that is able to quantify those cannabinoids. But if you haven't efficiently extracted all the cannabinoids and separated them from everything else, you're not going to get an accurate reading. And each new product that's introduced to the market market, it has a different chemistry. And so a lot of times what people will try to do is just plug and play. Like they use the same method that they've been using for all of their other edibles. A new edible comes around and they use that exact same method for this new edible, but it might not actually be the right method for that edible. And so you might not get efficient separation of the cannabinoids from the rest of the molecules within that food matrix. And because you're not getting the efficient separation, you're going to get inaccurate quantification and you're going to get a misread on how much THC, CBD and and other cannabinoids are in there. And so it's it's complex. You basically have to design a new method for every single new product that comes to market, but that's expensive and it takes a lot of time. And so a lot of labs are, are not willing to do it. And that's why having the internal lab at Plus was really crucial because we could just modify our method at will. We weren't trying to run through as many products as possible like a lot of these compliance labs are doing. We were trying to make sure that our product was accurately dosed. So we were able to take our time and analyze a lot of products to make sure that we were getting efficient extraction of the cannabinoids and analysis of them. What do you think is the easy solve on the testing problem if there is one? Yeah, I don't know if there's really an easy solve. I think if there were federal regulations, so if this became federally legal, then you'd get a lot more oversight and there'd be a lot more consistency. Like one of the really annoying things is the fact that if you're trying to operate as a cannabis manufacturer in two different states, you can't just ship from one state to the other. You actually have to set up your whole operation in that state and you have to comply with different regulations than the other state that you're currently operating in. So that can potentially change your whole process and prevent you from selling a lot of products that you were selling in the other place. And so there's a lot of inconsistency between between states, which I think could be solved or would almost certainly be solved with federal regulation. Yeah. So our listeners might not be aware, but if there's an edibles company like Plus operating in multiple states, not only do they need to manufacture in each state and test within each state according to the standard set, but they also have to secure material from that state itself. You cannot use California cannabis to make an edible in Colorado, for example. Yeah, that's exactly right. So legalization at a federal level would definitely be a big benefit to the industry from a testing standpoint. And I think that's that's probably the only fix that would make a huge impact. There are a bunch of little fixes that are happening on a state-by-state level, but I think a lot of them are Band-Aids. And yeah, yeah, it's tricky to regulate all these labs that are popping up when there's no sort of federal oversight. Just moving on to the fun stuff. So you were at Plus for a while. I'm sure you got to try everything. What was your favorite Plus product? Uh, uh, It's a good question. I really love the Pride Gummies. So our Pride Gummies, if you haven't seen them, they're these multicolored gummies against a white background. And they're really, they're pretty striking. And they're really, really fun to produce. The Pride Gummies are rainbow sherbet flavored. They come out each June. A certain amount of proceeds from the sale of the Pride Gummies go to benefit nonprofits in the LGBTQ sector. So not only are you enjoying a delicious product, Marshall's favorite gummy, but also benefiting a community that really needs it and getting high. So that's never bad. 
Marshall, if you were going to invent a new cannabis product, what would it be? A beverage. I think there's a lot of potential in the beverage space for innovation. And I don't know exactly what that would look like. But one of the difficulties with cannabis beverages is that these molecules, the cannabinoids are not very soluble at all in water. And so you try mixing them with water and it's like mixing butter with water. They just separate and the cannabinoids end up floating on top. So what you see with a lot of the products that are on the market today, if they're within a water-based beverage, you get a lot of separation and inconsistency in the dosing and you get really bad flavors as well because cannabinoids don't have a flavor that most people are drawn to on their own. Yeah, what flavor would you go with? Flavors are not my strong suit. Probably, uh, I guess I'd go with something citrusy. Just moved out to California from Toronto, Canada, and am very much enjoying the the warmer environment. And citrus always reminds me of the warmth. So I think it'd probably be something lemon lime or something like that. Nice. If you're a cannabis entrepreneur, this message is for you. This episode of Beyond Buds is brought to you by Peoples California, the leading supplier for metric-compliant cannabis. With reliable and consistent service, you can't go wrong by partnering with Peoples California. Their vertically integrated supply chain provides consistency, cleanliness, and competitive pricing. There are over 50 California cannabis companies relying on Peoples California. Find out more and get a quote at peoplescalifornia.com. That's P-E-O. P-L-E-S-C-A-L-I-F-O-R-N-I-A dot com. P-E-O-P-L-E-S-C-A-L-I-F-O-R-N-I-A dot com. Whether you're a white labeler, a brand, or a manufacturer, Peoples is here to help you grow. The fight against cannabis prohibition isn't over. Join the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws to help legalize the responsible use of cannabis by adults, remove criminal penalties, and advocate for access to safe and legal cannabis. To learn more and find your local chapter, visit normal.org. That's N-O-R-M-L dot org. So, Marshall, you're at Field Trip now and you're researching psychoactive mushrooms. Why the move from cannabis to psilocybin? In the back of my head, I always wanted to get involved with psychedelics. I had some really transformative experiences with psychedelics back in high school and going through college and grad school. And so I always wanted to get involved with psychedelics somehow. I honestly didn't think it would be possible at a professional level to do that for another 10, 20 years. I knew that the legal landscape was changing in favor of first cannabis and then psychedelics. Inevitably, hopefully all drugs will become legally regulated, but I didn't think it'd be a reality for a while. And then seeing companies start to pop up in this space and making connections through the cannabis space, I started to realize, wow, this is a real possibility. I could actually be working with psychedelics sooner than I thought. And these are incredibly powerful molecules in many ways, more powerful than cannabis, although I think it's always really tricky and probably not very wise to compare different psychedelic molecules or psychoactive molecules like that. But yeah, I've always been really drawn to them. And this gave me a legitimate path to working with them in a way that would potentially affect a lot of people. So Field Trip really emphasizes the importance of set and setting. Can you explain what that means to you? 
when people say set, what they're referring to is mindset. And that's the person's mentality going into a psychedelic experience. And so it's so important that going into a psychedelic experience, someone is calm and collected and ideally very open-minded and has a lot of trust in the process, in the experience that's about to happen to them. And so I think a lot of people go in with a really rigid mindset and they're very scared of what's going to happen. And a little bit of fear is natural. I mean, I don't think I don't think many people go into a psychedelic experience absent any fear and think that, oh, everything's going to be bliss and amazing and, and I'm just going to get high and have a great time. I think everyone's got some sort of tinge of fear. Most people at least have a little bit of fear going into it. But if you're open-minded and really have a lot of trust in the process, I think that tends to be more conducive to pleasant experiences, which in turn can be very conducive to good outcomes in the case of people who are suffering with uh, debilitating psychiatric disorders like major depressive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. And so to me, mindset is creating this sort of calm and open-minded environment where you're willing to just take in everything that happens during the psychedelic experience with a totally open mind and open heart. And then setting is the other factor in the equation and setting is the environment you're in. And that's everything from, you know, the, the couch you might be sitting on or the chair you're reclining in or the field that you're taking these, these psychedelics in to the people that you're with in, in that given setting. I think all those little factors, a lot of people don't really consider going into the experience because a lot of drugs, it's not so important. I think with most psychoactive drugs, setting does matter. But with a lot of drugs that are prescribed for psychiatric disorders, there's not much attention paid to setting. So if we think of antidepressants as an example, and particularly SSRIs, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, those are the drugs that are most commonly prescribed for someone who has major depressive disorder. And when they're taking these drugs or when they're um, asked by their physician to take these drugs, they're not asked to pay very careful attention to their set and setting because it's not in experiential medicine. The change is expected to occur slowly over a long period of time. Might not occur at all for a lot of people, but regardless, it's not experiential medicine, whereas psychedelics are very, very much experiential. So the focus is on this experience that the person is having when they take a psychedelic. And so the setting, everything in your environment is so crucial to having a pleasant experience. So you're really passionate about people you know, not forgetting that cannabis can be used in these sacred spaces in these sacred ways. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think cannabis has kind of been driven by a lot of marketing. And I mean, that's inevitable in a capitalistic society like the one we live in. But it's, I think, in many ways, unfortunate because cannabis as a psychedelic has sort of that narrative has been lost in large part in our society. And I think there could be tremendous benefit to treating cannabis in that way. So when I say treating it like a psychedelic, I mean really focusing on what you might call the sacredness of the experience or just the intensity of the experience and really experiencing it when you're when you're consuming cannabis rather than treating it as just a means of getting high. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, with treating it as just a means to get getting high or using it as self-medication on a on a daily or regular basis. But I think there is a lot that can be gained from treating it in 
in a way that psychedelics are treated where it's taken less often. It tends to be taken in fairly high doses and it's taken with a lot of intention. So you go into experience understanding that this is going to be a really intense and profound experience that could be life-changing. And then after having that experience, really incorporating insights from that experience into your day-to-day life. So that's sort of the psychedelic psychedelic model for how a drug would be treated. And I think cannabis is very much conducive to that model, but I think um, that's really not what's been pushed forward with the, with the marketing that's been happening in the cannabis space. So I don't want that narrative to be totally lost. I want people to realize that they could treat cannabis in that way. For some people, they'll never want to treat it that way, and that's totally fine. But I think for some people, that, that way of treating cannabis could be really helpful. Do you think there's still room for cannabis when it comes to the mental health space, even with the growth in awareness and practice of these uh, other alternative psychedelic medicines? Yeah, I think there's definitely space for cannabis in that regard. It's hard because not a lot of people want to take the research into cannabis seriously. Um, There are groups that are doing really incredible research with cannabis, but now that it's so widely available recreationally, there's almost less of a of a push for that rigorous research. It's weird because with psychedelics, it's like the medicalization of them. For society to accept that these drugs are okay, there had to be this sort of research backing it up, like all this clinical stuff. Whereas cannabis, I think being seen as a little more benign than other psychedelics, was able to make it to the market without much research at all backing up its efficacy in, in in many disorders. You know, there was dronabinol, the synthetic form of THC that was prescribed, I think, for nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy and also as an appetite stimulant for people with anorexia. And it has been effective as a synthetic in that way. But then there just hasn't been as much good research done on many of the other claims that are being made in the cannabis space, yet it's still progressed as far as it is, which I think is great. It's kind of funny that psychedelics have to be legitimized in some way through all this medical research that's being done with them. Because I think even if there was no medical benefit to psychedelics, but people were just enjoying psychedelic experiences, that would be totally fine and perfect grounds for keeping them legal. Like there's no real justification for making them illegal. Mm -hmm. Psychedelics and cannabis both can play a huge role in mental health. It's just figuring out exactly how to incorporate them. Like the psychedelic model is totally against traditional models for psychiatry, which have largely been focused on drug prescription and not focused on experiential medicine. And and so I think there's a paradigm shift happening there. And I think cannabis can absolutely squeeze into that paradigm shift. I don't know how that'll happen and if that'll happen, but I think absolutely it can be a part of it. And you could have cannabis-assisted psychotherapy that was tremendously valuable, not only for people suffering from psychiatric diagnoses, but for people who just felt that they could benefit in terms of insights into their own psyche. Yeah, I really hope that this experiential conversation continues to be mainstreamed. So what advice would you give to someone curious about trying cannabis or psilocybin for the first time? It's hard to give advice because I like to keep it as open as possible. I don't like when people are led to believe that an experience will turn out a certain way. I think being open is the best advice that I can give. But also, obviously, being safe and trusting whatever source you're getting this from. Ideally, you're growing your own. 
But if not, if you have to get it from someone else, make sure that you really trust the source because unfortunately it's not easy to have all these things tested for for quality purposes because a lot of them are still illegal at a federal level. But that said, if if you really trust the source and go in with an open mind, I think that's probably conducive to a good experience for a lot of people. If you weren't doing psychedelic science, what do you think you would be doing? A business that I had for a little bit and was a tiny business. It's hard to even call it a business because I never registered it or anything, but I was running with dogs. That was incredible. It was, you know, incredibly simple, but incredibly fulfilling for me. And I would just run with them for miles outside, always on different trails and along beaches and whatnot. Being with animals and being outside have always been, you know, key parts of my life. And I think if I weren't working with psychedelics, I would probably try to work with something in that capacity. That does sound like a dream job. (laughs) Hanging out with dogs all day. Yeah, it's not bad. (laughs) Marshall, what advice would you give to scientists who want to do the same kind of work that you do? That's a tough one. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done or that can be done in the realm of psychoactive molecules. And there's a ton of research that can be done on every level, you know, from the genetics of the organisms that produce the molecules to the actual effects that these different chemical combinations are having on humans from genetics all the way to psychology. And then you can even look at sociology and how these things are influencing us at a societal level and how they might be best incorporated into society. I'm still trying to figure out the best way to apply this research. The work that we're doing at Field Trip is really focused on many, many different levels of psychedelic science and figuring out which area will be most impactful is still very much an open question and uh, an area for exploration and discovery. I think it's ripe for a lot of scientists who are interested in this space to get involved because, you know, more and more companies are popping up in the space. So there's capital to work with. And obviously there's changing legislation throughout not only the US and the world that's making it more favorable to work with these molecules like psychedelics have been decriminalized now in a number of cities throughout the US and their pushes to do so on a state level as well. And Oregon just legalized psilocybin statewide. There's still a two-year development period before it's actually implemented, but that'll be psilocybin for anybody, Um, not just people suffering from psychiatric disorder, but someone who just felt that psilocybin might benefit their well-being can go into one of these state-licensed clinics. So that'll be kind of a model to follow that'll, that'll show the country, if not the world, what this could look like, and hopefully they do it right. But yeah, there's a lot of room for scientists to get involved with informing that process and really trying to understand all the nuances of it before it just becomes a marketing game of who who can sell their product better. Who are some other people in psychedelic science who you really admire? So Hamilton Morris, for people who are kind of aware of the space, he really digs into the science of psychedelics and tends to take a very unbiased approach to it all and addresses it at every level from, you know, the basic chemistry of psychedelics all the way to how these are incorporated in different cultures around the world. And he really does it in like a beautiful artistic way. I think it's like an amazing combination of art and science that he's managed to achieve with his show. So Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. It's a pretty amazing show. He is a scientist. He is great at explaining really complicated concepts in a way that everyone can kind of get. And he also tries everything. I think it's available on Hulu. Oh, cool. 
the more people it reaches, the better, because it's really a beautiful display of psychedelics. Yeah, so so he would be a big one. Another one would actually be Terrence McKenna. He's no longer around, but he really pushed the boundaries in terms of knowledge and thinking around psychedelic experiences. So I think a lot of people sort of laugh at him as being a quack because his ideas were so far out there. I think a lot of people have probably heard of like the DMT machine elves and everything. Mm, Stoned ape theory. Yeah, stoned ape theory. So these really weird experiences that he was having that totally didn't fit into the majority of the cultural mesh. And so he really thought outside of the box and, you know, was confident in his beliefs, despite the fact that a lot of people did not believe in them. And he even oftentimes, you know, doubted his own beliefs, but still made a joke out of everything. And so, yeah, to me, his sort of whole outlook on life was very interesting and positive and against the grain. So he would have to be another person that I admire in the psychedelic space. Yeah, Terrence McKenna is pretty amazing. You can still hear a lot of his lectures on YouTube. Where can our listeners go to hear more from you? You can definitely reach out to me, Marshall at fieldtriphealth.com. I'm usually pretty responsive by email. Definitely, if you reach out, I will try my best to get back to you. Thank you so much to Marshall Tyler and our sponsor, Peoples California. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you would tell one friend about Beyond Buds. Spreading the word about this podcast helps us grow our audience, which means that we can do an even better job finding incredible cannabis experts to come on our show. All right, pitch over. Join us next month for an incredible interview with a very special cannabis entrepreneur. Happy 2022. Thank you for listening, bud.